0: It was 15 years ago that I think a lot of us, unless you were a freshman or younger, were remember where you were when the planes flew into the Twin Towers. And uh, we said we'd never forget as a nation, and we don't want to forget. This morning, I want to remember uh, those that have fallen. We want to remember those that are in the military, those that serve our country through firefighting and through rescuing and police. And if you are a firefighter, I know you don't want recognition, but if you are a firefighter or a police officer, I'd like you to, or some kind of service, military, would you stand right now just so that we can, uh, we want to pray specifically for you. Thank you. And if the rest of you would just stand, and if you're near one of these people, just place your hand upon them, and letting them know that you are affirming that you appreciate what, what they do and uh, that we are praying for their protection. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for what you have done in our country, that you have given us this country. But Lord, we are not elitist in the sense that you are the God of only our country, You are the God who loves this world, and so we're thankful for it, but we are so thankful for those that are in our country that have done so much to be an instrument of yours. Romans 13, you tell us in your word that you give uh, those that that carry the sword for the protection of righteousness and truth, and sometimes we don't know when that happens and when it It sometimes gets blurred, but Lord, I thank you that the people that are standing here, I know, have served our country well. And they are the ones that run into burning buildings when others run out. They're the ones that go to the problems when people flee. And they're the ones that help keep justice and righteousness in our land. And so we pray for your protection upon them. And so, Lord, we thank you that we have this rich privilege just to lift up our country. And we do remember those that have fallen, those soldiers that have given their life, people that lost their lives in 9-11 and family members that still grieve 15 years later. And so, Lord, we thank you that we can just lift them up right now in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you've ever read this book to your kids or if you don't have children, if you worked in like nurseries or somewhere along the way. It's Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Now, I got to admit, when I read this book, uh, this kid, Alexander, had a very bad day. I mean, he got gum all in one day. He got gum in his hair. He... Uh, he, he did not have a toy in his cereal box where his brothers did. Um, he got moved to the ranking of number three in best friend status with his buddy. I mean, that's ultra traumatizing to go from one to three. Uh, he had too hot of a bath. He got soap in his eyes. He had a cavity, all these things in one day. Now, I, as I read this story this week, I thought, Why do we do that? Why do we read stories like this to our kids? And then it dawned on me. We do it so that we can prepare them to realize that at times life is gonna be sucky. Life is gonna be terrible. There are gonna be horrible, no good things that happen in this life. Now, if we were to make an adult version of this book, we would probably call it life stinks at times. And if I was writing it, I wouldn't write about stubbed toes or falling into mud puddles. We would talk about adult things. We would talk about how difficult it is sometimes to make ends meet and to pay all your bills. We would talk about sometimes the relational difficulties in families and how tough it is that for some reason our wife just doesn't understand us men or our husbands just cannot figure us out. And how difficult it is in this life or how difficult it is as parents to raise our children we raise them and we're worried as they are born and we worry about this life this world and what kind of influences are going to be there and then when they get to be teenagers then we have a whole different set of worries we worry about the boys that are coming around our daughters we we get our shotguns out, and we're ready to scare the kids off. We really don't do that, but we act pretty, pretty tough. And we, 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 we tell our kids that they're going to have to fill out applications to mar- marry your daughter and things like that. We do those things because we worry. And then when they get to be young adults, it's a whole other set of worries and anxiety that come upon us as our kids seek to find themselves in their 20s. And then there's issues such as divorce, or infidelity, or unfaithfulness, or death, cancer. See, these are all the hard things in life that come about us. That would be in our version of our book. Well, actually, we're going to study today a passage in the scripture that deals with the hard stuff. We're going to start looking in 2 Corinthians and We're talking about working for God, but the work that we're going to have to do today specifically is a work of of comfort. It's coming alongside of each other. It's coming, allowing God to come alongside of us. See, we're starting a new series, and the new series is in 2 Corinthians. And in the next several months, we're going to be taking a look at 2 Corinthians, and here's our title. It's Working for God. But I want you to know what it's about. Working for God is this idea that we are doing something productive for God, but it's not so much of employment. It's us using the gifts. It's using the abilities that God has given us, and it's being employed in God's service in whatever facet of life we have. We have a mission statement that says we want intimacy with God, community with each other, and influence in the world. Though influence is important and obviously intimacy is important. If, if you weren't here last week, that's what we focused on. But today and all through Second Corinthians, we're really focusing on community. How do we work together as a body of Christ? How do we build each other up? How do we become strong together? And that's our goal and our objective as we go through 2 Corinthians. It's not as much on the outreach, but on the inreach within the church. And so that's what we want to look at. And today we're going to look at our inreach of comfort and what God expects of us in terms of what He wants to do for us as well as what we should do. For each other, So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to look at the first two verses. And in the first two verses, I will give you a little introduction to the book of 2 Corinthians. It says this in verse 1, and if you don't have your Bible, the verses will be on the screen. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole region of Achaia. Grace, and, uh, grace to you and peace from God our Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is kind of Paul's signature stamp in a lot of his letters that he writes in the New Testament. He says this often, but that doesn't mean that what he says isn't important. It's actually something he wants to repeat because he wants people to know what he is all about. He wants people to know, first of all, those that are reading this letter, it's all about God. That's the first thing he wants you to know. You'll notice in the verse, it says the will of God, the church of God, peace from God. He's saying it's about God. It's about God. It's about God. You may be here today and you you may even question the existence of God. That's okay. You're allowed to do that. But just know from this writing, from this perspective, it's all about God. And then the apostle Paul wants us to understand what he's about. He says he is an apostle by the will of God. The word apostle means a sent one. I have been sent, Paul's saying, I have been sent by the direct will of God. God picked me to do his work. Now, if you know anything about Paul's story, he was on the road to Damascus. And he saw a bright light. And all of a sudden, he was a guy that was skeptical He was the one that was beating these people that were called Christ followers. He was dragging them off. He was the one that stood at the the approval of the stoning of Christians. So he was, in a sense, guilty by association and was a murderer of Christians. And God dramatically affected him and helped, helped him to see who Jesus Christ really was. And he said, you are going to be my chosen instrument. I will send you to the Gentile nations so that they can hear about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They will hear about the God who's existed from all times. They will hear about what I have done through my son, Jesus Christ. And so that's Paul. He is doing what God wants them to do. Now, he sent them to this region called Achaia. You'll see a little map up here. And this map shows basically the areas that Paul was working in his uh, missionary journeys. And on his second missionary journey, he spent a year and a half in this place called Corinth. You can see the red arrow there. And he spent a year and a half, and God did some amazing things. And there's a beachhead of believers that were developed. And all of a sudden, they started getting together and worshiping. And it was called a church. And he did works all in that area. Now, just a little background to how we get to the point of 2 Corinthians. After this church started, Paul went over to Ephesus and he started working with the church over there. And there started to become reports that there was a lot of bad things that were happening in this infant church. And they had problems right from the get go. And in the course of some years, he wrote four letters to the Corinthians. Three of them were negative. Three of them were rebuking and correcting and were training and trying to help them get back on track. And Paul's heart is obviously grieved for this infant church because they've gotten started on a rocky start. They had problems with sexual immorality within the church. Some some man had his father's wife, so it was an incestual relationship. There were some bad things that were happening there. There was disunity that was happening. People were bickering. They were following Paul. They were following Apollos. They were following different people in the church. And then finally, there were some false prophets that came into this church, and they were presenting themselves as super apostles, and they were trying to get them to doubt the apostle Paul and say, follow me, follow me. Now, the point I want to bring here is that it's always difficult to plant churches. It's always difficult. And when church planning takes place, the reason why the enemy gives a full-out assault on the church is because Jesus predicted it. He says, upon this church, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He said that in Matthew 16. But by saying that, it's implying that the gates of hell will try to prevail against the church. And my friends, that's always the problem within the church is that the enemy will be relentless to try to discredit. And this is exactly what was happening in this situation. Well, finally, the Corinthian people repent of their sin and they turn back to God and they really do what's right. And Paul writes 2 Corinthians as the letter that was like, yeah, You're on board. I want to come alongside of you. I want to encourage you. And he has several objectives. The first objective is that he wants to share his joy in their repentance. He wants them to know that he is so encouraged, and he wants to encourage them. The second thing that he wants to do, and this is probably the most important thing I want you to see, is that he wants to move these believers from being on the sidelines to being ministers of God. Throughout the book, he says, you are ministers, you are ministers, you are ministers. In chapter 3, he says, you are sufficient to be ministers. In chapter 4, he says, you're a minister of a new covenant. In chapter 5, he says, you have a ministry of reconciliation. In chapter 6, he says, I pray that there's no fault found in your ministry. And in chapter 8, he talks about their ministry of generosity. You see, when you have so many problems within a church and you're out of bounds, you're kind of sidelined. You're kind of sidelined because you're not on the front lines for God. But now that they had come into a right relationship with God, he wants to prepare them for action. And that's why we are focusing on working for God, that God would prepare us as a church for action, that we would do the one another's, that we would love one another, and that we would do what is right so that we could be healthy. Here's the third objective. He wants them to finish a collection that they were supposed to do and to help the poor. And he's going to encourage that in chapters eight and nine. And then finally, he's going to confront the false apostles. So that gives you a little bit of background to this book. Let's dive right into the idea of comfort today. Take a look at verse 3. He is showing as a god of Corinth, the one who wants to see this city prosper through this church and this church having an influence. This is what he says to them. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions. So why is it all of a sudden that God starts talking about comfort? Well, there's several reasons he wants them to know about comfort. And then probably the first reason is trouble is going to come your way. See, we find comfort in a lot of things. What do you find comfort in? Some of us find it in food. That's why we call it comfort food. You know that food. It just feels so good going down, but then you feel so bad later. I don't know why it's comfort then, I don't know. But then there's other people that try to find comfort by shopping. If they could shop every single day, oh, that would bring comfort. That would be hell for me. I mean, literally, a sentence in hell would be shopping every single day. That could be a part of hell. I want want nothing to do with it. Then there are some people that find comfort in vacations, just soaking your toes into that sand and hearing the crashing of the waves. That brings comfort. That brings comfort to me but that's not the source of comfort. And so what Paul wants to start off this letter, he wants this church that's gone through a lot, he wants them to understand the source of comfort. So there's two objectives in this verse verse here. The first objective is he wants them to understand that trouble and hardship is a part of life. Do you notice it's just kind of assumed? Blessed be the God of our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy, the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions. It's just assumed afflictions is a part of life. My friends, afflictions is always a part of life. We don't like it, but it is. I believe that afflictions come from many different places afflictions can come from the fact that we are victims of other people's sins this is the person who is a recipient of fraud of some sort it's the spouse who's been abandoned it's the widow that's been taken advantage of it's the worker that's been passed over by the newly hired cousin of the owner who's been exalted to the to the to the position above him or it's been the believer that's been slandered you're a victim And that causes distress, that causes agony. Or maybe your agony comes from self-inflicted wounds. You're facing the consequences of your own decision. This is the husband that cannot be trusted because of perpetual lies. This is the wife that nobody wants to be around because of the cuttingness of her mouth. This is the person that has no credibility because of a long pattern of sin in their life. That might be some here. Or sometimes our trouble comes from the fact that we live in a marred world. We just prayed for uh, one of our missionaries in Israel that lost a baby. Why does that happen? Why do we lose our homes to tornadoes and fires? Why do people get in accidents and they're, they're crippled for life? Why is it that people die prematurely? With cancer, trouble, trouble, affliction. You see, for those that would say Christianity is supposed to be a bed of roses, it's supposed to be good and easy, I don't know where they get it because it's nowhere in the scriptures. What Paul is saying, it is a part of life. It's gonna happen. It's gonna be all around you all the time. But here's what he wants them to know. He wants them to know the source of your comfort. Now, this is really, really important. Notice how this verse is laid out. He says, blessed be the God and Father. The way that this is structured in the original language is it shows it in a hierarchy sense of the Trinity. And you may not see the Trinity here, but let me point it out. He starts off with the Father. And what we know of the Father is that he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's all-loving. He is omniscient. And this is what God is. And it tells us God has to be that. And if you're going to believe in a God, you must believe that he is those things or else why believe in anything at all? So this is the character of God. This is who he is. But then he says he is the God and father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is simply the physical manifestation here on earth of the father. So when Jesus was here on earth, he was simply giving a display of who the Father was. This is what it says in John 1, He says, no one has seen God, the Father, but God, the one and only, Jesus Christ he's talking about. He's noticed he's called God, who is the, the Father's side, made him known. In other words, Jesus made the Father known. This is why Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone has seen me, you have seen what? You've seen the Father. He was a physical manifestation of what the Father was. And so we are able to go from here to seeing something tangible that we can understand. Jesus, he did things. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He came along and forgave the the adulterous woman who was caught in her sins. He washed the disciples' feet. And finally, he died for the sins of all humanity. Jesus did the Father's will. And finally, in this verse, he says, he's not only the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's the Father of mercies. What does that mean, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort? Well, it's actually a reference to the Holy Spirit. Because the name for the Holy Spirit in the Greek is paraclete. And it means to come alongside. And so what God is saying is that the Holy Spirit's job is to come alongside. And if you are a born again believer, if you've ask God to forgive your sins. You've yielded your life to him. He puts his Holy Spirit to live inside of you. Now notice what happens. God way out there, Jesus manifestation, Holy Spirit right here. It brings it right down on a very personal level. And what he is saying and how how this should be encouraging to us is that the entire Godhead works for your comfort. The entire Godhead works for your comfort. You see, what this tells us is that God is the source of all comfort. It is impossible to receive true and complete comfort apart from God. Some of you are trying to receive comfort from your husband or from your wife. And you wrap yourself around that individual. Please understand, they will not fulfill you. They never will. They are a help but they will not be the source of your comfort. Your source of comfort will not be your education. It will not be your accolades. It will not be the things that you accomplish in life. None of those things will be your source of comfort because God is the only source of comfort. And if you don't have God, you don't have the comfort that God wants to give you. See, the beauty about God is that he offers comfort to everybody. He offers it, but it comes through an avenue of humility and repentance where I come to him and I say, okay, I mess up this life. I've messed up so many times. I'm asking that you would forgive me of my sins. I'm yielding my life to you. And it's at that point that we can start unleashing and feeling the comfort of God. But it comes when we trust him with our whole heart. In her book, Uninvited, Lisa Turkrist, speaks to this point in handling difficulties she says this this is what it looks like to rise above circumstances and determine to hold on to the greater good the grand scheme of things honoring god we do so by remembering our job is to be obedient to god god god's job is everything else my friends god is the source of comfort Paul doesn't stay there, though. He moves then from the source of comfort to his plan for comfort and his plan for comfort in your life. And this is what he says. He's going to look. We're going to look at verses four to seven. But before we look at those, I want to point out two realities uh, that you're going to look at when we look at those four verses. The first reality is that trouble is here to stay because he uses a word affliction and suffering repeatedly in these verses. So take note of that when we read it, affliction, suffering, affliction, suffering. The word affliction means this, crushing pressure felt inwardly. Anybody ever feel that way? Ever feel crushing pressured inwardly? And affliction or suffering means difficulty because of, that comes to your life because of your faith in your belief in God. And so that's the first reality. The second reality that we're going to see here is now that the God who sent his Holy Spirit to come alongside of you, now wants you, once you've received that comfort, to come alongside of other people. That's his plan. His plan is to use you as an instrument of comfort to other people. Let's take a look at what the verse says. Take a look says this, So that we may be able to comfort, God has comforted us, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, we do share in his sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, crushed within, It is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same kind of sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. Now, what is being described here is God's plan of providing for his children when they are hurting. You see, God is so practical. He knows that we need Jesus in the flesh to come to us at times. And there are times that there are dark moments in our life where we cannot see clearly, and we just need somebody to come put their arm around us, to, to hug us, to help us, to encourage us, to sit with us, to pray with us, and say, I've been there. Friend of mine... Don Adams is a firefighter. He tells me that when firefighters go into a building, they go in and it's often dark. They don't light up buildings so that you can see well, so you can see where everything is. There's smoke, there's dark, there's fire. And they're feeling around and they're trying to rescue individuals. But there's always somebody outside of the house that is looking at the big picture and they're watching how the fire goes and where the smoke is coming out and they can say hey you got to watch this on the first floor you got to be careful on this on the second floor or it's time to evacuate right now see some of us are the people that are in the burning house We're going through such a difficult time. We're grasping. We're grappling. We're trying to find our way through it all. And we just can't see clearly. But what we need is that person outside of our house that's been through it. They've been in the house before. They know what it's like. And they're calling the shots and they're saying, hey, I'm, I'm coming alongside of you. I'm there for you. Do you see the beauty of God in providing this system in this thing called the church? That we come alongside of each other because we're all going to be in that burning house at times, in that trial of life. And God has designed it so that we come alongside of each other. It says in the text, it says that God sends people our way for our comfort and our salvation. That's kind of strange. You think, I understand the comfort. You've explained that, but my salvation? Well, the salvation here is not talking about when I initially gave my life to the Lord. It's talking about the maturing process. It's the working my salvation out in fear and trembling, as Philippians 2 talks about. It's, in theological terms, it's called sanctification. It's what God is trying to do through the difficult uh, problems that we face You see, God is trying to accomplish something. Romans 8 says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Notice he doesn't say all things are good. He says he works it all for our good. According to those who are called To his purpose. Do you see? God has a greater purpose for you. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Do you see what he's trying to do? He wants to make you, through the pressures of life, more like Christ. And what was Christ like? He was utterly dependent upon the Father. And that's what he wants. Here's the problem. The problem is when we try to fulfill ourselves and turn to solutions other than god when we try to dull our pain through the bottle or we try to fabricate some kind of happiness through maybe smoking something or trying to self-medicate the anxiety in our life when we do these things we're barking up the wrong proverbial tree yes there's times that we're on medicines according to our doctor prescribing them to us but that's not the source that's not the solution. The solution is in trusting God. You say, Steve, that sounds rather trite. I mean, okay, just trusting God. Is that it? That's the solution? That's what it's all about? Yeah. Well, how's that carried out? I'd rather use myself as an example than somebody else. Several weeks ago, I wrote this text to a friend. I said, I'm having a crisis of life of which I do not know if I have the strength to continue. Now, for those of you that would be worried that your pastor's losing it, I do at times. (laughs) And don't ever think you have a special lease on problems, okay? Don't ever think that. On this particular day, I hit a pretty emotional low in my life, and usually I'm pretty even keel. But to give you context, I had been putting more hours than I should have in ministry. On top of that, I was doing some house projects that wore me down. I was doing a lot of uh, counseling that was emotionally tapping to me. And on top of that, we were going just through a family issue that we had to wade through. And so on the stress charts, it was through the roof. Now for me, I have to have a plan. Where is my comfort going to come from? That song described it. Why are you so downcast, oh my soul? I will trust in God. So the first step for me is that I have to cry out to God. That's the only thing I know to do. Cry out to God. God, what is happening here? I don't understand it. And it's okay to cry out and say, God, I don't understand you. I don't understand your hand. Read the psalmist. You see how often the psalmist cries out and you think, oh my goodness, is this guy going against God? But he's just being real. We're allowed to be real with God. But then after we cry out to God, what I needed to do, is step two, is I needed to be alone. I shared last week how important being alone in solitude is. That's what I needed. But then step 3 I needed somebody flesh and blood to come alongside of me somebody who's been there and that's what I did I sought out that wise counsel and finally I took some time to rest My friends that's my storm that storm has gone it's there's still remnants of it but we're we're a little bit in the clearing But I know in the future there's another storm. Because in 35 years of walking with God, there's been storms, sunny skies, storms, sunny skies, cloudy days, and it goes on in life. But the one thing I've known through 35 years of walking with God is that I must trust in God and I must lean on my brothers and my sisters. I feel so bad for the individual that's doing it all by themselves they're following a plan that is doomed for failure my friends here's our question what is your plan for comfort and this is why we're doing community groups you might say oh Steve, this is a great plug well it's more than a plug we do community groups for a reason so we have this one another and we have learned a lot i will tell you we've made tons of mistakes and we're trying to figure this out as we go. I am just being completely honest. You think, man, these guys must have it all together. No, 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 no. We don't have it all together. We're trying to figure it out. The elders are trying to figure out the deacons. But we're, trying, we're doing what we feel God wants us to do. And being in community is so vital to this ministry because of what I'm talking about today. Let's move on. The last thing that Paul talks about is our dependency needed to gain comfort. Now notice this. What Paul's going to do in verses 8 to 11 is he's going to use himself as a case study. He's going to use himself as a case study of saying, I have despaired even of life. I have had such a difficult time and difficult hardships that I despaired life. Now, we don't know, the theologians, the commentaries I read, don't know the specific thing that Paul's talking about as we read this. But what we do know is that Paul's gone through a lot. Later on in 2 Corinthians, he'll say, I've been shipwrecked. I have been stoned. I have been whipped. I've been flogged. I have faced death over and over and over again. So listen, this guy's had plenty of hardships that he could write about. But what is important is his conclusion that dependency on God is what is created here. And if I'm dependent on God, then I have comfort. Take a look at what he says. Look at verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the afflictions we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that that was to make us not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead he delivered us from de- such deadly perils and he delivers us on him we have set our hope and that we deliver uh, and he will deliver us again you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the many prayers of many three things of dependency number 1 relying on God, not ourselves. Relying on God who raises the dead. See, this is the person Paul's saying, I personally been in that smoking, burning building. I'm trying to figure it all out. I've been to the place of despair. And what we need is we need to rest and depend on God. But why depend on the one who rose the the person, for Jesus Christ from the dead. Why does he put that in there? Because he wants them to know that if he can raise his own son from the dead after three days of being buried in the grave, he can deal with your life and your life problems. Dependency, number one. Dependency number two is seen in this statement. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. See, the first dependency is dealing with our dependency on the power of God. But this dependency is based on our future with God, depending on him for our future. He says we are resting, setting our hope on him. Hope is the belief that God is in control of my life. Now notice he says here, he will deliver us again so it's showing, Paul saying, again and again and again, I have seen it personally in my life. When I have depended upon God, there's kind of this light that comes to the darkness of the room. And all of a sudden, because I've held on, I've held on to him, I've held on to the people that are around me, God shows himself. And I know my future is secure. And then the f- third thing he's depended on is the prayers of his brothers and sisters. It's about needing each other. He says that you also must help us by prayer. I've said it before that I don't really understand a whole lot about prayer. That may sound weird for a pastor to say. I understand that we should pray. I understand how we are to pray because Jesus gave us that instruction. I know that God wants us to pray with clean hearts and a pure pure, pure a pure heart and clean hands. And I know that he wants us to pray regularly and often without ceasing actually. But do I understand how all the prayers work? Do I understand how a multitude of people praying, how God hears them all? Do I understand that? No. Do I understand how one person praying, God hears that person? And he says in James that the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Do I understand everything about prayers? No. But I don't know that prayer is about us understanding the hows, but more the what of prayer. And the what of prayer is what it accomplishes through the collection of those that are dependent on God. See, he wants prayer is a sign of dependency on God that we need him, that we're calling out to him. And that's why in our community groups, we pray together. That's why w- when we pray for missionaries, it's not just something to put in the bulletin. It's because we really want you to take that bulletin and pray for those needs because somehow prayer works and God works through it because we become dependent on him. In a moment, we're going to serve communion. Communion. I want you to know if you're new to the ministry and this is all new to you, you can just observe. But it's designed to be a time where we show our dependency on God and we ultimately thank him for his shed blood on the cross and his body that was broken for us. But before we take that communion, I want you to see this story. There is a person in our, in our ministry, Gretchen Dorfler, who... Um, has had some pain of her own in the past. And she's gonna tell her story now about how others came alongside of her to be that encouragement. Please understand how hard it is to present yourself in this way. You make yourself very, very vulnerable, but please take note of this card that was given to you when you came in. It has everything to do with this video. Watch this.
1: Uh, My name is Gretchen Derfler, I am married to Christopher Derfler, and together we have two children, Nigel and Bailey. Um, My story starts in 1989 when I was living in Florida with um, my father, my brother, and my fiance at the time, Rich. Rich had told me that once I finished school, we would set a date for a wedding since we'd been engaged for over two years. So I, um, I finished school. I was getting ready to start my first job in a salon. And while I was at work, Rich was supposed to, um, he was going to move our things out of my dad's house into our new apartment. Um, after I finished work, That day, I went back to my dad's house just to see how the move was going. And I found out that all of Rich's things were moved, but my stuff was still at the house. When I got to the apartment, um, Rich sat me down and explained to me that he thought that we needed some time apart and that he was gonna go ahead and stay in the apartment and that he wanted me to stay at my dad's house for a while. This uh, totally rocked my world and upset everything. I was devastated because this was gonna be our perfect little life. I realized that Rich was seeing somebody else, but I also, at the same time, found out that I was pregnant So I didn't even hesitate to call him and tell him and um, the words out of his mouth were not the words that I was hoping to hear. He, he pretty much told me that um, he wanted nothing to do with me, he didn't care about me anymore and he definitely wasn't going to have a child with me. And I turned to my mom, who was living in Maryland at the time, I called her because I really thought she would be supportive. Since she had my sister and myself out of wedlock, I figured that she would be understanding. So I called my mom, I told her what was going on, and her words were, you need to get rid of this baby. I decided that that's what I needed to do. I. Um, talked to Rich. He was willing to pay for an abortion. He drove me to the abortion clinic and um, and also volunteered to pick me up that day. I, um, Within a matter of days of finding out that I was pregnant, I had an appointment at the abortion clinic, had an exam, uh, no counseling whatsoever, and the procedure was done. So, in their words, my problem was solved. Chris, and we started dating and um, we soon got married after a year of dating and in 1993 we had our first child together. So now I thought I was living my perfect world and um, I had a husband. I had my son <clears throat> but my emotionally I was not I was not right. I, um, I was a very angry person. I, every little thing made me yell. Um, I threw things all the time. I slammed doors. And just a very out of control person. It was recommended to me that I go to an outpatient program at a psych hospital and get some counseling. So I did that and for a temporary time, that was good. I, was, I felt better. But the anger issues and the depression continued to come back. So then in 97 we, um, we had our second child, we had Bailey, and I was positive that this was gonna be what we needed to help our relationship and to help myself. And um, but same story. Still lots of anger, yelling at my children, yelling at my husband, and um, just um, very short tempered, very short circuited, and um, really was kind of at my wit's end as to what I was going to do to to help myself. We moved to Mogador and I met my um, my neighbor, Linda, who was the most caring person and the most genuine person that I've, I had ever met in my life. And she would take time to come over and chat with me and um, just really spend a lot of time with me. She talked to me a lot about God and I wasn't sure how I felt about God at the time, I really just never really took the time to think about that. And she told me that there can be healing from my abortion and had I ever sought it. And I told her that I had no idea that there was such a thing. I I didn't think I needed any healing. I really thought I was fine with it. And um, so she shared with me some of the emotional um, baggage, side effects that come from an abortion. Um, anger, depression, suicidal thoughts, um, addictions. So, it got me to thinking that maybe I did need some healing, and um, Linda asked me to go and speak with um, Jenny over at the Pregnancy Center, who did some post-abortion healing with other women so i agreed to it and i had never in all the years of counseling that i had been to nobody had ever said to me that my problem might be from the abortion that i had had and um, this was the first time that i finally felt like uh, a weight had been lifted off my shoulders that somebody really cared about what was going on with me, someone cared about my past, and also that it was okay for me to be going through the things I was going through because of um, what I had been through in 1989. Shortly after meeting with Jenny, I, um, I surrendered my life to Christ, and I was able to, um, to just recognize that all the years that I was trying to find my perfect little life, what I was really looking for was filling a void that I had and that void was God the entire time. So, um, so I share my story because I want women to know that it does not have to be taboo. It doesn't have to be a secret. We need to let people know that we did make mistakes, but God forgives us. He completely forgives us, and um, it is my desire that I can encourage women to step out and um, and um, go through the healing program that I went through.